Hello, and joining you this week from the Casco Viejo in Bilbao, where I arrived yesterday under the misapprehension that the Grand Depart must already be happening, having heard the immortal words, the tour is the tour, from riders in at least three separate interviews over the last week. My name's Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we'll mainly be discussing whether there are indeed more stupid things than looking into a camera and telling the world your name is Primoz Roglic. Why, contrary to what Thibaut Pino says, we'd all take popularity over success and David Gordou's ideas on elevator etiquette. In fact, we won't be talking about any of that, um, full disclosure. Um, but we will be talking about what everyone has been talking about over the last few days, namely Tour de France Unchained, i.e. Netflix blockbuster new documentary series. Helping us to do that will be one of the men behind the project, executive producer James Gay-Reese. But before we get to him, I should also introduce the other man most commonly responsible for the unchained melody that is this podcast, which is not to say that we are brothers or particularly righteous. Lonely rivers flow to the sea, to the sea. He is the lion of not Watford, Lionel Burney. Wow. How are you, Lionel? Wow, I'm, I'm very well, very well, Daniel. And I'm staggered to learn that you're already in Bilbao. You do realise that you basically got <laughs> two, two and a half weeks of rest days oh. before the race actually starts. So I'm, <laughs> yes. expecting, I'm expecting you to be I'm on peak to... form for your uh, television I'm trying gig to, this summer. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to soak up some atmosphere, Lionel. I'll be out there tomorrow <laughs> in, the, in the calles of... In the Calais, in fact, they call them of Bilbao, just recording birdsong and the, the, the noise of passers-by. Oh, this sounds um, fantastic. If you could record some of that for our Basque Country Kilometre Zero episode. I will be. I yeah, will be. that would be great. This already. Yeah, wonderful. Anyway, how are you, Lionel? I'm very how well, thank you? you, Daniel. Yes, the Tour de France is approaching very quickly. I'm having a few rest days of my own, too, just before we all set off for the Grand Depart over there in northern Spain. So, uh, yeah, quite quite energised and enthused, having binged wow, that, the Netflix. I mean, <laughs> that'll soon end. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, you're going to have to take my word for it. Having binged Unchained on Netflix, and it really yeah. got me in the Tour de France mood, brought me bang up to speed, reminded me of some of the key storylines from last year's race, and uh, it sort of whetted the appetite. And to be fair, kind of overshadowed the Dauphiné for me, really. I was, was more compelled by last year's action than, than this year's because, well, as we'll probably hear in your news roundup, the, the direction of travel from the Dauphiné was, well, it was one-way traffic for uh, a, a former fish market worker from Denmark, wasn't it? Hmm. I was in the Ribera, the very famous covered market in Bilbao earlier today. Uh, lots of fishmongers in there. Um Made me think of Jonas Vingegaard. Brian Lionel, just on Tour de France fever, I can tell you that, well, to the extent to which the airport is decked out in <laughs> Tour de France bunting and decoration is always a bit of a, an indication of how excited people are. There is a bit of it in the airport. There was a bit of it yesterday. I also saw a, there's an official Tour de France merchandise stand that I passed yesterday, not far from the Guggenheim Museum. My taxi driver was talking about the Tour de France yesterday. That's always a good sign as well. Um, he certainly knew it's coming down. And yesterday... I went for dinner in uh, a, a burger joint, effectively, a posh hipster burger joint. Um, they also had vegan, vegetarian burgers, but they most significantly had a burger called the Tony Rominger. 
and I asked why this was and it was apparently just because the owner of the burger joint is a fanatical cycling fan so who knows tomorrow I might go and catch up with him see just how fanatical he is no other cyclists uh, on the menu no burgers named after any other cyclist so we're very curious about why he chose Tony Rominger which also spelt wrong on the menu it was the Tommy like Tommy Toys Rominger uh, well won the welter of course didn't he Rominger world hour record probably won the tour of the Basque country did he probably well certainly world hour record holder at one point wasn't he maybe was it not some kind of eating challenge you have to finish the burger was it huge and you have to finish it Within in under an hour, an hour? No, I don't no. think so no, no, I don't no. think so <laughs> anyway Lionel shall we get on with the news roundup featuring the Dauphiné that bored you and um, maybe some other people. Well, it didn't excite you to the extent that the Tour de France is going to excite you. And Tony Rominger didn't win the Tour of the Basque Country, by the way. I'm just checking. So, news roundup. It was the Dauphiné. Uh, it finished the weekend with an emphatic victory for Jonas Vingegaard. Two minutes and 23 seconds is cushion over Adam Yates of UAE. He was second. And two minutes, 56 seconds over Ben O'Connor. He was third. Final stage was won by Giulio Ciccone, who incidentally today revealed why he sort of signaled the number 27 with his fingers as he came over the line on Sunday, 2027 being the year, until which he has extended his contract contract with what will imminently become Little Trek. Um, so he won on the Bastille on Sunday. The further stage wins for Vingegaard twice, in fact. Georg Zimmermann of Intermarché. Mikael Bjerg won the time trial. Christophe Laporte won two stages. And Julien Alaphilippe. We should just we should just dwell for a second on the Dauphiné, Lionel. Um, or more than, a, more than a second. Vingegaard, that was a shot across everyone's bows, wasn't it? Tadej Pogacar's bows. Uh, I did lots of interviews with people last week in which they, well, they talked about the gulf between Vingegaard and the rest of the assembled GC aspirants for the Tour de France. Um, a very amusing one with Esteban Chavez, where he sort of, uh, he, he kind of did a, a hierarchy. He enacted a hierarchy with his hands and he sort of said that, this doesn't work very well on podcasts, actually. He sort of said that we're down here there are a few riders who are here, just a, just a you know a centimeter or two above where he put his hand, and then he, he sort of reached to the sky and he said, "This is where Vingegaard is right now," and then let out a big sort of belly laugh. Um, Esteban Chavez in EF Education first, incidentally, had a shocker on Sunday. Did you see that? Carapaz was almost last on Sunday stage, which was slightly alarming. But um, yeah, your thoughts on where the wind is currently blowing, where the where, weather vane. This famous Vingegaard Pogacar weather vane is currently pointing. Well, it has to be pointing to Vingegaard now, doesn't it? I mean, Pogacar, we will we, we'll get an idea. I mean, what sort of idea will we get of the form he's in from a ride at the national championships in Slovenia? We'll, we'll get something. It, you know, presumably, it will be uh, a, a boost to at least have a race day before the Tour de France. But Vingegaard has not really put a foot wrong, has he? And uh, in the Dauphiné, no. it was the time gaps. It was the fact that he was clearly the best on all of the mountain stages. You know, he did a good time trial as well. And not that, you know, time trialing is going to be key to the Tour de France because there's very little time trialing, but it is an indicator of form, isn't it? Um, it means that his legs are going round quickly and he's strong. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's there's no real sense that there's, there's a sort of chink in the armour at the moment. But, you know, two weeks to go until 
Uh, everyone will arrive in Bilbao and it's a long way between now and the sort of business end of the Tour de France. So I think, you know, recent years we've seen riders win the Dauphiné and then be very good at the Tour de France. I have no, um, you know, no reason to suspect this won't be the case for him, but that doesn't mean he'll have everything all his own way. The, the I suppose looking at the GC from the Dauphiné, the, the rest of the riders all sort of look like, you know, sort of sixth place type riders for the Tour de France, yeah. didn't they? They'll probably no, not was... be too unhappy with where they're standing. But as Chavez said to you, the, the problem is that that is quite a long way away from where Vingegaard mm. and where we have to assume Pogacar will reach as well. So... Mm. Yeah, there was a, there was a sort of second tier of riders who all will who all were satisfied with their Dauphiné. So Ben O'Connor, Jai Hindley, and Jack Haig. In fact, Jack Haig, who did the Giro d'Italia, did the Dauphiné, got that sort of custard pie off the being sent to the Dauphiné. But then also by the end of the week, was talking quite bullishly about maybe doing the Tour de France. Um, quite quite enthusiastic at that idea. But then there was another layer of riders or another tier of riders who really had pretty disastrous Dauphinés. Um, David Gordou being one. Carapaz in the end being another, certainly as far as general classification was concerned. And um, yeah, there were a couple of others as well. Enric Mass didn't have a particularly good week. Mikael Lander as well. Um, I should also mention, we should also just pick out Max Poole's performance. Um, DSM, 20 years old, already fourth and taught the Romandie earlier this year. Um, from Scunthorpe, the son of a window cleaner, Lionel. I suspect that this is going to be, that's going to be the line that's trotted out about him. Um, for the foreseeable future um, until he re replaces that narrative with something a little bit more nuanced, um, a little bit less caricatured. But what a talent he is. What a performance. He lost the white jersey on the last day to Carlos Rodriguez. Of course, won't be going to the Tour de France, but definitely one of the stars, one of the revelations of the week. Lionel, remaining on remaining in France, on Tuesday we had the CIC Mont Ventoux race, which was shortened due to an inclement weather forecast, hence the race lost one ascent of the giant of Provence, but may have seen the birth of a star with the 19-year-old Lenny Martinez of Groupama FDJ out sprinting Mike Woods to take victory. Uh, Martinez split times between you know, split time between Chalet Reynal and the summit of Mont Ventoux was so social media said the fastest ever recorded, including you know the likes of Chris Froome, Marco Pantani, the controversial Lance Armstrong, and so on and so forth. So a joyous conclusion to that race, and a very regrettable, controversial one for another mountainous race sponsored by the same company, CIC, at the weekend, the Women's Tour Féminin Internationale des Pyrénées. That race was cut short. Declared null and void. I think it's been declared null and void, Lionel. Do you know, do the previous two stages results, do they count towards rankings? Oh, that is a good question. Whether they will count towards rankings, I have to be honest, I don't actually know. I was away over the weekend, so kind of just caught the controversy um, and, and obviously saw the fallout, saw the reaction from Adam Hansen and the others. 
at the CPA, the, uh, the basically the, the union for riders, and the extraordinary reaction from the race organiser who really didn't judge the uh, temperature of the water terribly well, did he? I mean... Uh, no, Pascal Baudron. What's happening is that the girls have demands that don't match their level. He said, quite honestly, I don't think it's worth organising a race to see all those months of effort ruined for the whims of spoiled children, uh, referring to the fact that, well, the UCI were the ones who had called the race off um, after, well, vehicles that didn't belong to the race convoy they found their way onto the course on both stages one and two, didn't they? Well, it wasn't just that, was it? It was also parked vans. It was, uh, you know, there was there were numerous incidents. It, it was effectively like racing on open roads at times by the looks of, of the uh, the footage I saw. But yeah, not, not the response that a, a responsible race organiser should really uh, make. Yeah, hold hands up, apologise and uh, vow to do better, I think is probably the only response. And well, if he feels it's not worth the effort, it, well, he may well have that decision taken out of his hands anyway. So uh, yeah, not, not great. I mean, not not much more to say about that really other than uh, that the, the athletes deserve a lot lot better staying put for one last piece of french news groupama fdj boss marc madio has delighted many and in the rider's own words sickened arnaud demar by confirming that thibaut pinot will go to the tour de france and demar will not demar told l'equipe that madio informed him at the boucle de, de la moyenne at the end of may they would not be renewing Demar's contract, nonetheless, Demar said his selection for the tour team had been a done deal since the winter, at least as far as he was concerned, only for Madio to call and tell him otherwise last Thursday. Um, this is a risky move, I think, Lionel, by Madio, um, particularly in light of Gordou's performance in the Dauphiné and also the fact there's no time trial that's obviously going to suit Stefan Kung in the Tour de France. Not all eggs in the Pinot basket. Um, I think Thibaut Pinot does have some chickens, actually. Um, but well, the, the eggs will be shared between between him and David Gordou, and they're very much, well, very much on the mountainous stages, aren't they? They are. I mean, the difficulty of the route is there aren't a huge number of opportunities for the sprinters. But Damar, you know, on his day and in good form, he is resilient, isn't he? And you would have thought would give them an opportunity for a stage win. It's tricky, that, isn't it? Because um, presumably this uh, means that they're going to go for GC with a rider who currently two and a half weeks away, Goldu I'm talking about, is bang out of form. And uh, Pino is will be riding his final tour. That will obviously garner a lot of publicity for the team, Groupama FDJ. But uh, in terms of kind of getting a result, it does pile an awful lot of pressure onto a rider who isn't going into the tour as well as he would want to. Yeah, what we don't really know is how much Demar's relationship with Gordou has played a role here. I mentioned there. I mentioned Gordou's elevator etiquette. In the introduction, that refers to a scene in Netflix where he basically kicks the Netflix crew out of an elevator. But there was also this story, wasn't there? Um, well, David Gordou, he had been fairly indiscreet about his relationship with Arnold Demar on Twitch, wasn't it? Was it on Discord? On Discord. And he also mentioned the fact that Demar had, were well, not wanting to get into a lift with him at the team training camp. 
Well, he'd alleged this, but we know that they don't particularly get on. There was a bit of a rapprochement or an attempt to bring them together at Paris-Nice. Demar actually worked pretty well for David Gordou at Paris-Nice, and it seemed like that hatchet had been buried and that they would be able to work harmoniously at the Tour de France. But, of course, Pino had a good Giro d'Italia, and I think that has, well, that made Madio probably reconsider the balance of the team and Pino is now going for his last hurrah. Demar is not. Um, another couple of bits of racing to cover. The Tour de Suisse got underway on Sunday with Stefan Kung. The aforementioned Stefan Kung taking the first leader's jersey after a 12.7 kilometer time trial in Einsiedeln. Since then, stage wins have gone to Biniam Gamay, Matthias Skelmorza and Felix Gall, AG Tuar's Austrian climber, who at the time of recording with the Queen State to La Punte come on Friday. Also leads the GC by two seconds from Skelmorza and 16 from Remco Evenepoel. Also, two other national tours of Belgium and Slovenia got underway on Wednesday. Jasper Philipsen took stage one in Belgium and Dylan Kronewegen got off to a flying start in Slovenia. That's about it for the week's newsline. I was going to mention Silvio Berlusconi, the death, obviously, of Silvio Berlusconi, huge news in Italy. Um, he has had some cycling links and was the secondary sponsor to the Amore Vita team in 1997-98 with Forza Arcore and from 1993 to 1997 his media set television empire with their well the first channel Italia Uno they were broadcasters of the Giro d'Italia and that was quite controversial caused a little debate at the time because it was the first time that Giulio Italia had been taken off state television um, Silvio Berlusconi who of course died earlier this week well Daniel I haven't had my eyes across all of the racing over the last few days mainly because I've been away for a few days I'll talk about that in a moment but one of the things that really struck me looking at all of the results and seeing the performances in the Dauphiné and who's going well in the other stage races all the names that we expect to see doing things at the Tour de France contesting for stage wins or the GC are all kind of coming to the fore now aren't we it's quite an exciting time of the season this when uh, we realise that the Tour de France is almost upon us. Now, as I say, I was away over the weekend because I was up in Edinburgh in Scotland for a memorial event for our dear friend Richard Moore, who died in March last year. And uh, it was a lovely day on Saturday. There was a bike ride in the morning, several laps of Holyrood Park with great views of Arthur's Seat and the city as we went round. The ride was led by Richard's dad, Brian Moore, and there was a um, great turnout, including Sir Chris Hoy, Olympic champion, multiple Olympic champion, who was a very good friend of Richard's, of course. And then in the afternoon, there was an event held at Summer Hall, a huge gathering of Richard's friends and family, including a number of colleagues from the press room as well. And uh, I was... I was really honoured to be asked to speak as Richard's friend, but also on behalf of the podcast. And it was especially proud to see the podcast so well represented at the event. Orla Shenoui hosted proceedings absolutely brilliantly. Her cycling podcast feminine co-host Rose Manley was there as well. And all of our producers made the trip as well. Adam, Will, Hugh and Tom were also there, as was David Luxton and our old friend Jonathan Rowe, who left the podcast a couple of years ago. And incredibly, Stacey Snyder came all the way over from the US. And it was great to have so many people who have been part of the team that Richard helped build over the years, all there in the same room to uh, remember Richard 
And the day before the memorial, we all made a trip, or some of us made a trip to Linlithgow, which is to the west of Edinburgh, to the West Lothian Cycle Circuit. The circuit opened at the end of last month after years of planning and fundraising. It's about a one kilometre long circuit, and it's for riders to race on, train on, hopefully, uh, you know, spot and develop the future world tour riders from Scotland. We were shown around by former Scotland Commonwealth Games rider, uh, James McCullum, who was also a friend of Richard's. And we all rode a lap of the circuit, including the little cobbled section that they've managed to put in as well. Fantastic facility. Great to see it actually uh, existing because when Simon Gill and I were there, Back in April last year, it was still at the planning stage, really. They hadn't uh, really started work on actually getting the circuit down. And of course, you may remember back in 2019, when we first started selling Stacey Snyder's cycling podcast mugs, a portion of the proceeds would go to a good cause each time. And one of the first causes to receive some money was the West Lothian cycle circuit. And Matt Ball, one of the driving forces behind the circuit, wanted to thank Stacey all of the Cycling Podcast listeners and above all Richard for their support in helping to make the circuit a reality and to the extent that they're going to name one of the corners after Richard, the top corner, um, the big hairpin just before the finish line will be called Buffalo Bend and Stacey's in the process of making a ceramic plaque that will be bronzed and placed on the grass bank overlooking that corner. Um, a really lovely way for them to remember and honour Richard's legacy and uh, not just as somebody who helped out in a small way with the circuit becoming a reality but because really cycling was Richard's life and he well it's easy for me to forget sometimes that he was very good at it too wasn't he because uh, we pulled each other's legs over the years recording the podcast you know he wore his knowledge quite lightly at times didn't he and easy to forget that he was a Scottish national junior champion and he represented his country at a major games the Commonwealth Games in 1998 and he was very proud to do that so I know Daniel you were at the Dauphiné one of a large number of people who weren't able to make it because of clashes um, but you were there in spirit and uh, I, I mentioned you in my speech as being the the, the third leg of our cycling podcast bar stool and um, hopefully there'll be some There'll be some other events to honour and remember Richard over um, the coming years. But it was a fantastic day and uh, it was a real privilege to uh, be able to be there and remember Richard. Hey Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... Uh... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. Well, Lionel, now to the main event of this week's podcast. I said in the intro that we'd be talking about Tour de France Unchained Netflix eight-part series about the 2022 Tour de France. I don't think it needs too much introduction. It's been the talk of personal cycling for many months now, hasn't it? And, well, we were very fortunate earlier in the week to be joined by James Gay Reese, who's a very acclaimed film producer. He's one of the individuals behind this series um, with his company Box to Box. He's multi-award winning 
film producer, won BAFTA for Senna in 2010, one of his best, or certainly one of his best known works, um, Senna documentary about uh, the tragically deceased Brazilian motor racing driver, Formula One pilot. Ayrton Senna, he also won an Oscar for Amy, a documentary about Amy Winehouse in 2015. Um, his company is also behind Drive to Survive, the series really that spawned Tour de France Unchained, um, gives Formula One motor racing the same treatment that he's now given Tour de France. Also, Full Swing about PGA Tour and golf and Breakpoint about professional tennis as well and Lionel well we've enjoyed we personally have enjoyed many of his films haven't we I mean Senna goes without saying Amy as well Maradona is another absolute classic another one of his collaborations with um, Asif Kapadia um, who he's done a lot of films with Um, also uh, some of the ones that people may be less familiar with that I've mentioned on the podcast before all this mayhem about the Papas brothers who caused a sensation in skateboard and several others that you've seen as well well the one that stands out for me is the maradona film which really kind of ripped up what a sports film could be because it really zoomed in on a particular period in maradona's life and perhaps not a period that um, many people are that familiar with and well the opening sequence of of the film has lived with me uh, because it was it was such an unusual way to start a sports film it really uh, homed in on on the 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 the, the person and the profile of Maradona, who obviously, as you experienced during the Giro, is, well, he's an almost godlike figure in Napoli, isn't he? And uh, so, yeah, with that and with Drive to Survive, which I'll be totally honest, I am not into Formula One at all. I'm, it hasn't converted me to Formula One either, but I did find particularly the first couple of series of that very watchable because it humanised the drivers underneath the helmets and it really kind of played up the, uh, you know, the drama of the events. It, it kind of slowed down an extremely fast sport, didn't it? That was what it did. It it, it kind of put some, you know, a human face on uh, on 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 the front of those helmets and 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 gave a bit of an insight into uh, what it takes to drive a car that fast. So I had yeah high expectations for the unchanged series and was really interested to see how it would turn out and very interested to uh, speak to the man himself about uh, what he made of the experience well Lionel without further ado here we are in conversation with James Gate Reese on Wednesday morning Le Tour de France, c'est très simple. Ça brûle. On est essoufflé. Speed is relentless. Just be ready for anything. C'est la course la plus dure au monde. La douleur permet de savoir qui on est. Oh, on va la gagner, cette putain d'étape Yumbo Visma are in absolute chaos. C'est une course à élimination. Va falloir faire des choses qui presque sortent de l'ordinaire. Quand on fait le Tour de France, on rentre dans un truc spécial. Well, James, first of all, it's um, well, it's a great privilege to 
to meet you and um, to have you here with us today. And I guess, I, I imagine you're probably glorying in some of the sparkling reviews that you've already had um, in the in the first week, or not even a week yet since the series has been released. I mean, how is this period for you generally? It's always really good fun. I mean, listen, the reviews seem to be really good uh, here and in France. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, it's a nice moment. I mean, we, we find out from Netflix a bit later how the show, show is doing sort of around the world. Um, so hopefully that's positive. It feels like the, the word of mouth is really strong. And um, yeah, it's just that question of just getting it out, out there to as many people as possible. But um, no, it's really interesting. I think the show is going down with people. I think it's connecting with people. I think you don't have to be a man psyching fan to enjoy the show um, at all, actually, because I'm not. And I you know, really enjoyed the, the discovery process of making the show, you know. So... Hopefully, you'll find a new audience, which will, you know, which will elevate all things tour. You're not a mad cycling fan, you said there, but I understand you sort of on the way to becoming one, or were in the process of making this film. Is that right? No, I could, I sort of like pointedly stayed out of the madness and the build up to the show because there were a lot of people on the on the, on the production that were pretty hardcore cyclists, and I thought. And a lot of people who weren't, but I, I sort of made sure that I stayed relatively kind of like un, uninvested until the edit so that I could basically approach the edit with the team with a real sort of like punter's point of view to make sure that I understood what was going on. And I think historically, I think I've been a bit scared of the tour. I think I always found it a little bit intimidating in the sense, did I understand it? What was it all about? You know, was it for me? Because I'm a massive sports fan and I kind of like, I'm probably, I don't have a huge amount of bandwidth left in order to kind of like um, dive into the tour. But I was really glad that ultimately I did um, maintain that perspective because when it came to the edit and trying to work out what it was all about, listen, I'm not, I'm not now the world's greatest cycling expert, but I did learn enough to understand what the key fundamentals were and to appreciate it just for what it was. I now think it's amazing. I'm just completely enthralled to it and uh, can't wait to sort of dive into it and really kind of be, pretend to be an aficionado when I'm not. This year. Um, James, we'll, we'll get into the, the weeds a little bit of, well, the filmmaking process and also, well, your burgeoning interest in a minute. But Lionel and I were curious. Well, we'd like to explain because there's been a bit, there's a lot of sort of, um, speculation on social media about who had what influence in this. Could you just explain this sort of four points or this quadrangle of box to box, quad box, ASO, effectively, the organizer of the Tour de France, and Netflix? Were the, and, and so, how the series came about involving those sort of four points of that square? I mean, really, basically. Quadbox is a joint venture between our company, Box to Box, and Quad in Paris. Okay. And we were sort of introduced to each other by Netflix um, to uh, become sort of friends and buddies in order to make this show and a, another show for them. And um, it's been a very happy union, actually. We're long-term partners now, and we intend to carry on working together on as many things as possible. Um, so yeah, it's, there's nothing really sort of that magical about it. It was just a kind of, it was a, we were brought together by Netflix. I think I think Netflix, Quad and ASO were probably talking already. And they mm. brought us into the mix because we make Drive to Survive and these other shows. So, you know, there's this kind of, uh, there's this kind of 
this suspicion that we know what we're doing, which we don't really, obviously. So um, they brought us in and we, we tried to muck it up and we didn't fail. So, you know, that was really it. Yeah, the other quadrangle is the three series that uh, precede this, Drive to Survive, Breakpoint, Full Swing, and now Unchained, of course. I mean, how does cycling compare to those other sports? I mean, I can think of some obvious differences. There's a lot more athletes involved for a start. Um, so it must have been harder to sort of identify the leading characters that, that you wanted to focus on. But in, in pure mechanics, how did it compare trying to shoot the Tour de France compared to a season of Formula One or the tennis tour or the golf tour? Well, it's a lot shorter, isn't it? For start, the set pieces are a lot shorter. So, you know, you've only got a couple of weeks to really nail it, three weeks um, to really get yeah. inside the tour and try to work out what's going on. So, you know, try and survive nine or ten month season so if you don't get ferrari relatively early in the year you try and get them later in the season so there's that difference and that applies to golf and tennis as well because they're, they're all long seasons so the shape of the series is very different the thing that probably most is most equivalent to is uh the six nations which we've just done a show about which again was obviously sort of like a mm -hmm. two-month period so it's slightly shorter as well and therefore, you don't really get that many opportunities to um, catch up. You've got to hit it pretty much first time in some capacity. And I think that that's definitely a challenge with the tour. And obviously, it keeps on moving. It's not stationary. It's a, you know, it's a complete, um, it's a completely fluid thing. So, in all these shows, you basically have to put bets on where you think the action is going to be at some point. And I think it's maybe slightly easier to work out. Which talk, which stages are going to be more meaningful to which teams? But I mean, listen, as a novice, you know, I can't pretend to suddenly sort of tell you exactly which team and where. But I think that would be the fundamental difference: is the length of the you know is shorter, and therefore you've got to just be filming all the time with as much as many teams as you possibly can, and hope that you're in the right place at the right time. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. I mean, James, I think well, probably when you. Um, talk to people or people or they talk to you about drive to survive what a lot of people will talk about is the characters and they you know the fondness that's grown for certain characters people like toto wolf and um and gunter steiner over the course of a three or four series really um how much did you think that this was going to be character driven in the same way and how much preparatory work went into identifying who those call it eccentric characters or you know i mean lionel and i we make documentary podcasts and we find ourselves over the course of time we gravitate obviously towards even you know to really get granular about it to people with better voices to people who you know have strange quirks um how much preparatory work went into like before you arrived at the before your crews arrived at the tour de france into identifying who they were well, I didn't do that work, to be honest with you. So a lot of work went into that, to be honest with you, in terms of building those relationships, but I didn't truthfully do any of that. It was the kind of wider team. And so, like I said, they put a bunch of, you know, you can't make a documentary about a bunch of people who don't want you to make a documentary about them. So you've got to basically be pushing an open door. And so, as you know, you guys probably know. And so it's, we basically went to where the access was basically willing and, um, you know, obviously each team's got their own narrative. And, you know, if you compare Jumbo Visma to EF, they're very different kind of like narratives, mm -hmm. right? So you want to blend the differences with characters to sustain the series. And I think we had that in the main. I think we did get a good a good sort of cast of willing contributors. And access is, all, is always an ongoing challenge with anybody in any show, you know, who in their right mind really wants to 
invite a camera into their lives for you know three weeks or for 10 months you know what i mean it's like it's uh i probably wouldn't be first in the queue to honestly not that it'd make a very interesting documentary but i think um it finds its own le- its own level you know you kind of you put a lot of flies in the water and mm. you know people step up some people take the fly some people don't some people swim around the fly for ages you know and you eventually just get to where you get to and you can't you can't force anybody to do anything they don't want to do and you've got to people have to meet you halfway in the process and sometimes that's enough and sometimes it's not quite enough you know so you just kind of you just keep on diplomatically trying to mess up the situation and to get people to buy in as much as possible but it is what it is tell us a little bit about the process how many people are actually on the ground in the cruise you know across all of the different teams that you were filming Again, it's not really my department, but I mean, you know, there were there were there were basically, I think, um, I think there were eight PDs uh, monitoring eight different teams most of the time, and um, they would be backed up by sound and data and production. So, God knows, I mean, honestly, I couldn't tell you how many people are on the ground, but you know, it can't be anything less than fifty, I would guess. But you know, then there's a whole ton of people back in the UK or back in France. So, yeah, that would be my very uneducated guess. Would be fifty. So what was the first point of your involvement? So the, the crews all go out. What were you doing when the Tour de France started uh, this time last year? Probably making another show at some point. So um, I sort of didn't get involved until the edit, truthfully. So obviously I was aware that it was happening. I was in various pieces of Netflix. My partner Paul did the heavy lifting with ASA for sure. Um, and was Jan at Quad did the, you know, was Jan and Paul really got it over the line and um, like all these things, you know, there's multiple conversations and, you know, it kind of takes a while to for, for everything to fall into place. And then um, Jan was very much on the ground during the tour, Paul was in and out. And I was certainly doing something else at the time because we have a sort of variety of shows going on. And then um, I determined to stay out of the process until quite late on because I thought that somebody had to basically watch the thing as a real novice to see what it, you know, what we had and whether it made any sense to anybody and try to work out what the point of it was, you know. So um, and I really enjoyed that, actually. I was really glad that I had that kind of complete impartiality and ignorance about it, to be honest with you, because it allowed me to kind of like try to put it all together. So what were you looking for when you first sat down to, to, to watch what had been brought back and, and put together? What were you looking for? Just the same with always, it's like something that people are going to give a shit about. You know, why will anybody watch this show? If you don't know anything about it at all, why would you get involved? You know, why would you stay with it? And um, you have to try and work out what the really fundamental, you know, emotional gears are of the show. We've all ridden a bike, right? So it's like, it's relatable on some level, but then you realize pretty quickly that it's totally unrelatable in the main because it's so mad, so dangerous, so clever, so strategic and so compelling that actually you've got to kind of go quite a long way to mess it up, really. So it was just about trying to make it that relatable, you know, relatable as much as possible. And I think luckily the team did a great job of getting a lot of the good stories in the uh, in the in the event. I think there are plenty of moments in the series where you just kind of go, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. It's just like it's so out of control that these people actually do this with their lives. It's a bit like tennis in a way, you know, we can all play tennis, but not many people can really deal with the pressure of being in a grand slam situation. And like, I think we can all ride a bike, but I'm not sure many people can go over the Pyrenees in a hurry. So um, that was what really blew my mind was the sheer extremity of what they do 
and also the kind of strategy and the kind of like the massive game of chess that it is you know i mm. found fascinating and by the way you know i i'm looking at it from a pretty binary you know novice novice entry level so um i'm hoping to build on my knowledge I mean, James, you guys, you know, you know, the sort of victims of your own success with Drive to Survive, you've done such a fantastic job with that, that, well, you have now had propositions to treat other sports. But I'm just wondering, um, you, you know, you, uh, you take a film like the Maradona film that you did with Asif Kapadia and Lionel and I, I mean, we both watched that and we both love it. And the thing we both sort of admire about that, and this applies to the stuff we do as well when we're writing features, is the bravery to look through a microscope rather than a telescope. And the fact that with that film... You know, it wasn't a, a film about Maradona's whole life. You maybe understood Maradona's whole life through the prism of the, that concentrated period of three or four years in Naples. And that, that was a very brave choice, but, it, you know, emphatically worked. These series, by their very nature, are sprawling. You're being asked, you're being called upon to introduce a lot of characters, a lot of different narratives and somehow weave them together. How challenging is that for a documentary maker? They're totally different processes because you know one's archive right and one's access so they're totally yeah. different processes. you do you do a different part of your brain and um it's at the end of the day story is story and themes are themes and all that jazz but archive is even though and even that movie for example probably we would have had i don't know three thousand hours of archive i'm guessing to make yeah. a nice movie and you know Senna, we could have carried on archiving forever i think we just literally we just had to stop and kind of make you said you had 5,000 hours or 5,000 hours concentrated into two. Yeah. yeah. So it's like it's, um, and this is totally different. I mean, there's a very high ratio of what you shoot to what you end up using in an episode. But access is totally different because, you know, you're on the ground in the moment trying to sort of like capture things that matter. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But with archive, you can have so much of it that you can sort of basically sort of, you know, holistically bend it to your will in order to make a point. And I think it's, um, it is literally entirely different. I think that obviously the Maradona film was about somebody's, you know, 10 years of somebody's life, whatever it was, right? Mm. About three weeks. So they really are totally different beasts. And there's no real, I mean, they're both documentaries, apparently, but that's where it kind of ends. You know what I mean? They're, they're different exercises. And um, one's about the moment, one's about, well, they're both about the moment. But they're very sort of different definitions at the moment. So it's a you know they're a weird they're they're weird bedfellows. They don't really they're, apart from the fact mm. they're kind of both loosely documentaries. They're not the process is so radically different. And ten episodes is or eight episodes, whatever, is a massive challenge to um, get over the line because it's um, it's all going to feel like part of the same series, which is difficult sometimes. Yeah, eight episodes is not very much. I mean, as we talked about in professional cycling, there might be. 220 people you could potentially focus on whereas in it's self-selected in formula one there are 20 drivers and 10 team principals um you know was that a huge is that a hugely challenging aspect of of this particular proposition the tour de france proposition as well of just how 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 to wrap your arms around some or all of it you can't from everybody you know you can't from everybody all the time because that would be a sort of like an insane exercise. So you have to, like I said, you've got to, you've got to play some bets and you've got to basically back some teams and see how they get on. And, you know, you can you can sort of make, anybody's got a story, right? You know, you don't, not everybody has to be, you know, having a complete epiphany or revelation or kind of like, you know, conversion all the time. You know, everybody's journey from 
when they wake up in the morning to the end of the day is a narrative. So it's just the context and how it all fits together. So, you know, um, you know, we just, you, you choose the teams that are, that are basically are open to the process and then you just, you see where it goes. I mean, it's, you know, there's no mad science to it. You know, there were certain teams we filmed that didn't do much. So therefore you're like, okay, well, you know, and that happens in Formula One all the time. You know, there are certain teams that, you know, basically they start the season in ninth and they finish the season in ninth. You're like, okay, well, that's kind of, mm. you know, it's maybe not as compelling as some other narratives. That's just the way the cookie crumbles a little bit. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. They've been backing us since 2016, and it's a relationship that started largely thanks to Stephen Moon, the CEO of Science in Sport. And it's one that we are very grateful for, not least because I get the occasional energy gel to help me with my riding. Stephen Moon also started a relationship with the Tour de Lunsar. Uh, when he heard about the event, he wanted to reach out and offer some support. And that has formalized into formal sponsorship of the Tour de Lunsar, which is a grassroots stage race, which also has races for junior riders and women riders. It's in and around Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone. And if you listen to the latest episode of Service Course, there's an absolutely fantastic documentary piece put together by our producer, presenter extraordinaire, Tom Wally, and featuring friend of the podcast, Oscar Scarsbrook. And it's a real immersive piece that takes you to Sierra Leone, to the area in and around Freetown, the capital where the race is held, and uh, gives a real insight into what it's like just to get on a bike, let alone compete in that part of West Africa. And it's a real passion project for Stephen because his belief is that cycling is for everybody and well his line was that if they can fuel riders who are taking part in Grand Fondos or charging around the Surrey Hills well they really ought to reach out and include all cyclists all over the world and so that's how the relationship with the race began and it's a fascinating event and the piece is really worth listening out for it's in service course the latest episode is called from lunsar to arkansas and it's on our feed now if you want to find out more about science in sport go to scienceinsport.com Tour de France is something you dream of when you're a little kid. To go to Tour de France is always pressure. It's not easy. If you win a stage here, it's probably one of the biggest things you can win in your whole career. My mind is exploding. I never expected. Vous accrochez le dossier, vous devenez un autre homme. Allez, 300 mètres, Bob, 300 mètres. In the end, my only goal is to win. The Tour de France is a completely linear event. Well, as, as all events are, it starts at the beginning and it ends at the end. And the series starts with the, uh, the, the, the opening time trial in Copenhagen and it finishes on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. But it kind of messes with my perception of what last year's Tour de France was because it jumps about all over the place. I mean, how much of a, how important was that to the, the storytelling really? Because it does lift you up above uh, a sort of uh, this event led to that event led to this event style of narrative and it did help elevate the characters I felt and and m meant that you could get a little bit more granular um, despite this kind of challenges Daniel alluded to earlier and, and focus elevate certain people in certain episodes I guess that was 
that was your job to make the shape of the series come out the way that it did. Yeah, it's always a it's always a kind of conversation with Netflix because they um, they're not that worried about chronology in anything. To be honest with you, they just want the series to be as strong as possible, obviously, and they want as many people to watch it as possible, and they want people to continue to watch the whole thing. So they tend to suggest that we kind of front load the episodes with the strongest narratives, right? So there aren't that many things that have to be chronologically told, truthfully, at the end mm-hmm. of the day. The Formula One season goes back and forth all the time, you know, and it's like the concept of the Six Nations. It's a league, so at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where you begin and end because it's just it's a league and somebody, you know, it's, it's not like a knockout competition. This is like different, obviously, because it's a race, you know, with kind of, you know, with chronological stages and it kind of, it's a, it's a different system. But, you know, as you can probably probably tell from the series, we don't get too bogged down in the detail of, you know, who did what when, because it's not a highlight show, so it doesn't have to be that, um, that faithful to the kind of truth. And if you were, probably, you know, it probably wouldn't really warrant the exercise because people already, you know, a lot of people have already seen the actual tour on TV. Mm-hmm. So what's the point of basically telling what they already know? So you're trying to look at it from a different point of view and through a different lens for a reason. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't, you know. So it's, uh, there's, there's a kind of, there's no hard and fast imperative or instruction about how to sequence it. But I think it's, it sort of does end up with sort of some sort of common sense about the shape of things and which characters when and which stories when. And it's just sort of, it, it finds it its own level. And, you know, I hope that we get it right in the sequence, but ultimately that's for the audience to kind of, you know, agree or not. I mean, I guess, James, it's sort of the story of your life as a documentary maker that, or the treading the, the fine line between storytelling and what, journalism i suppose you met you mentioned there you know it needs to be correspond to the truth to a certain degree but um that's another question as well that people have asked over the last few days there's been a bit of well there was a very very light pushback wout van art sort of suggesting there was too much editorialization or it was misleading um the storyline in the first episode having not seen the rest of the series i don't think but um where, where if if we were to sort of imagine a, a set of scales um, how do you see your responsibility to the truth versus your responsibility to creating a, uh, a strong narrative? And is that any different from us as journalists, for example? Listen, I think that Val needs to see the rest of the series and then he'll realise that it basically all sort of balances out and pays off, you know. And I think that what people don't understand, and there's no absolutely no reason why they should understand, is that we can't tell every single aspect of every single story, every, you know, every single beat in a kind of completely reflective manner, because they just, you know, you have to, by definition of, as you know, if you, as you guys know, you have to basically witness something and then package it into a, mm. a format, which is basically 40 minutes long. Okay. And it's a really, really difficult process because you've got to basically make an episode work. If it doesn't work, then nobody's going to watch it. Right. And so you have to basically bring together the elements in a way that is reflective of what happened, but in a narrative flow. And it's really hard getting that balance. And obviously, we want to basically be, you know, as rep- as you say, uh, accurate and reflective of what went down as much as possible. But you're, you're condensing, say, a week into 40 minutes. And you have to basically compress events into a shape that flows and goes from beginning to the end as you know 
and that it requires lots of choices. I think what people don't realize is that it's what you leave out, right, as opposed to what you include that is basically the determining factor because you have to leave out a ton of stuff because you can't put everything in, otherwise an episode would be yeah. weak, right? So you have to reduce it down to, to the fundamentals and sometimes you have to take skips in order to get from A to B, or actually from A to Z, quicker than you'd possibly like to. There's no more fundamental truth than the fact that it didn't work in the edit. And there's no reason why anyone should ever understand that, but it didn't work in the edit. And it's really annoying because I'm the one in the edit going, it doesn't work, shit. So we've got to get it to work somehow. It's always a big rivalry in cycling. Tu peux être éliminé très très rapidement. Il faudra aller au-delà de la souffrance, au-delà de la douleur. What about the aesthetic of the Tour de France? Because uh, the Tour de France in European countries has quite a different demographic to the Tour de France in the UK and America, where the audience tends to be a bit younger, a bit cooler, sees a sport through a slightly different lens, where in, whereas in France it's kind of the the, you know, the old person's sport of summer. And we know anecdotally from a French colleague of ours that uh, you know France television really shies away from gritty images because it, it needs the tour to look uh, clean and clear and vivid. Um, it's a very primary coloured event, isn't it, the Tour de France? And as a filmmaker, I'm guessing, especially with your archive films, you know, you're never frightened of going towards the grainy, grittier truth. Um, how did you find it working with, with kind of such you know, vivid, bold, bright yeah, images. And images. Did you do? Did you do anything to kind of, you know, uh, change that to to impose a slightly different aesthetic on it? No, I think that I come back to my earlier point about basically looking at it from a really, really objective point of view and just trying to work out what it what it meant to me. Because you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm the one probably fundamentally who is signing off on various edits, right? And I'm the one that's going to, along with the team, obviously, and the rest of the gang, but. Mm. Sort of taking responsibility for it and trying to work out what I find compelling about it because you know that old adage is that you know listen if I don't want to watch it then nobody's going to watch it in my mind I've got to make something that I think is worthy of you know somebody's time and I think that I know what you're saying in terms of like you know the the kind of viscerality and the texture of it all but I didn't really find I mean I just found it endlessly kind of fascinating so I did, it wasn't particularly hard for me to kind of to get engaged with it because I was like holy shit the whole thing is kind of like utterly bonkers and I can't mm. spend enough time with it. so it's a bit like you know on Drive to Survive Sky do a great job of their broadcast in terms of how they present Formula One but we're not trying to replicate that at all we're trying to do something entirely different for the audience and I think they, the two things really coexist really well but um I honestly haven't seen the France television coverage so I couldn't tell you so I just looked at it from a an entertainment point of view it's like well you know What's, what's cool about this and what will people hopefully respond to? And that's, you know, you can't really do much more than that because otherwise, if you're trying to second guess anybody, you're kind of dead in the water. You know, rightly or wrongly, I just go with my instincts and see where it, see where it takes me and we basically drop it on the world and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And, there's, you know, that's kind of the sad reality of the situation. Um, James, you uh, alluded to access earlier, and I suppose that this gets into maybe censorship as well by the teams. I mean, what were the rules of engagement and and how much of a difficult dance was that? And and how does it compare? How is it compared to, for example, Formula One? Well, it was pretty straightforward, actually. I mean, you know, it was 
fair it was actually pretty painless i'm going to be honest you know maybe we were expecting more pushback or come from the teams but i think that actually everyone's fairly happy i mean i wasn't that directly involved in the review process but i didn't get a sense of oh my god we've got to bin this edit and start all over again it was mm. pretty painless and i think um I mean, did they get did they get a sort of approval, editorial approval? Uh, I mean, did they see the cuts, the teams? No. Yeah, yeah. Teams, you know, in any of these shows, they all, they all see it at some point before it goes out, but nobody gets editorial approval because there's only one person that gets that, and that's Mr. Netflix. So you know, that's not me or anybody. So that's a it's a collaborative exercise. There, you know, you don't really end up in situations where you have these massive standoffs. I mean, even on Dry Survive, after all these years. You know, team principals will be like, oh, my God, I really didn't want to say that. You caught me off guard. Can we have a chat about it? And you're like, yes, but, or okay, fine. You know, so common sense prevails. It's not really a thing, to be honest with you. If somebody genuinely shares something that is genuinely problematic, then we have a chat. But it's, most of the time it's all right. James, there's a lot of talk that, I mean, you'll be aware. There's, there's this idea in cycling that cycling should be a lot bigger than it is. And uh, this idea that there's a, there has been a glass ceiling and cycling is just waiting to burst through it. Um, so there's a, kind of a lot of pressure on this series to do that, to help um, do that. And there's also a lot of talk about the Netflixification of sports and sports coverage. And I think that people define that in different ways people have different ideas about what that means do you think that these i mean is it a hope of yours that these documentary series change or have any lasting impact on well, either general sports broadcasting or the, even the, the very fabric of the sports themselves and the way the protagonists behave listen at the end of the day the actual sport is the actual sport and you know we've got no control over that at all you know our reflective interpretation is just one way of looking at it and you know you can't have you know you have no input at all into the outcome and it's, it's ridiculous to think that we do in any way shape or form and when you know when people sort of accused us of having some input into the that end of the formula one season before last you know what are you about it's just like of course we don't you know of course, the, of course people aren't controlling the race outcome for Netflix's benefit. It's just like, you know, do you really, I mean, listen, I'd love to be that powerful. It'd be great. But, um, you know, the sad truth is that I'm just another little tiny cog in the machine. So I'm a massive sport fan. And anything that basically brings more people to any of these sports, I don't know, is that a bad thing? I mean, I think that the reason why leagues are queuing up to make these shows is because there's a massive competition for eyeballs. And a lot of these sports are a bit male, pale and stale, and they need to get a younger demographic, right? And... If we can help with that, I don't really see what the downside is. I mean, Formula One is unrecognizable from where it was five years ago, right? That yes. is a bit of an outlier. I don't think we, you know, that's going to happen with every single sport because for some reason that's just radically changed. That that was obviously what that sport kind of needed at that time. And it has been transformative and it's pretty widely recognized as having some sort of impact. But, you know, and it's not just the show, but it is lot, the show's got a large part to do with it. So everybody always has their own rationale and their own kind of justification for whatever happened. But I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to not recognize that Formula One is watched by a much bigger, younger audience now than it was five years ago. And that's what they wanted, right? So job done. You know, I don't really know much about cycling, honestly. So if people think that cycling should be bigger, then I hope that we can help it grow the audience, you know? Um, 
sometimes these shows do really make an impact and sometimes they don't you know and you i've got a magic wand nobody does and you know it's just you know we do our best we try to make something really entertaining we love the sports we're dealing with and if we can if that's reflected in the experience then great i think that it's obviously definitely a moment whereby a lot of these shows are being made people seem to be watching them it seems to be what people want to see maybe people are kind of like want to see less male serial killer tropes mm. Do you know what i mean they want to you know sport is drama that's the reason why i love it it's because basically at the end of the mm. day sport is inherently dramatic and mm. it's you and me you know we can all sort of imagine what it's like to get on a bike or pick up a tennis racket or even maybe play rugby i didn't really want to imagine what it's like to be a serial killer it's not to really float my boat mm. so uh, i think sports are fairly authentic it's pretty relatable on some level and you know the audiences are pretty established so we're just trying to you know rise the rise all the tides mm. James, I think we're, we're going to lose you in, in a minute, but um, if you could just indulge us for a minute by maybe talking about a favourite, maybe a favourite scene or, or if not episode of the Unchained series or something that you saw when you saw it come in, you were really, really excited by. I was telling a mate last night in the pub about um, the Pidcock uh, beats and scenes and just what a lovely sort of breath of fresh air he is into the sport and his just kind of approach to just being a dive bomber and just kind of like you know think about how good those guys are at racing downhill and then you've got this guy coming along and just kind of like just totally bmx's it or whatever he does mm. and just goes off the charts and just kind of like the completely lawlessly kind of like rewrites the way that people you know do that stuff and i think I love that. I love. I think he's a great character. I mean, listen, there's so many great characters in it, and um, his approach to the sport is just so refreshing. And again, I say that as a pretty, as a pretty, as a novice, but I do like that kind of like you know, let's just have fun with this and let's just bang down the mountain and just see what happens and just sort of like take everybody's breath away. So yeah, that's one of the things I loved about it. But there's many, many things I liked about it. I think Bat's a great character. I think Pagatch is a great character, even though it's not even the show. I think his presence is really kind of like compelling and actually, you know, we'd love to get the chance to do another series and to hopefully feature him because he's actually, even though he's the kind of, you know, the ruling power in the sport that has to be dethroned, he's got great energy and there's something really compelling about him. So, you know, yeah, there's lots of characters that I really like. So those guys, I think I'll probably highlight. Was there anything very odd or idiosyncratic? I mean, we also inhabit this strange, you know, pan-European, well, mainly it has been in the past, European sort of zoo. We're animal. we're very much animals in that zoo where, you know, people, all these sports that have their own sort of patois in cycling, it's this kind of pan-European patois, which is very heavily influenced by the Belgians. And, you know, it has its own language, its own... Was there anything that you just... When you first watched, you thought these people behave very strangely in a in a particular fashion. Well, pretty much all of them, all of the time. I, mean, I think that it's yeah. a, <laughs> it is a really, really profoundly strange but really compelling world. So no, I think it's um. Listen, like I said, I got my head around the fundamentals. I've kind of got I've got the basics of what is kind of going on. I'd love to now get more uh, immersed in it and to kind of understand it more fully. But um. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is a kind of learning curve, isn't it? And I think, you know, just seeing the difference between, you know, the kind of like sprinters and the climbers and just all the basics. It's just like, it's fascinating, the domestics and the team leaders or whatever it might be. So 
no I'm, I'm really i'm at page one and i've got to do i've got to do more homework but i'm you know, i am really keen to learn more because i think it's uh it really warrants it and hopefully people will feel the same when they've watched the show will there be a second series if so when will you be involved and will you be watching the tour de france this summer i'll definitely be watching i'm actually going to try and go to a couple of uh, stages so we're just you know we're talking to netflix about the season two it hasn't been confirmed yet so fingers crossed we'll, we'll find out We're a cyclist. You always keep pushing and pedaling. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.